Hello, you're listening to Just Screen It, Case Studies in Creative Distribution. I am your host, Colin Stryker, and I am not an expert in creative or self-distribution. I am an independent filmmaker working towards making my first narrative feature a horror film entitled The Grove. As I've been contemplating my own eventual distribution strategy, I've been looking seriously at self-distribution as an option, but I found that there's not a lot of data out there to really understand how it's worked for people. So I decided to start this podcast to help capture some of the experiences of those who have already been through it, whether successful or otherwise, and from those experiences, help both listeners and myself better understand this really complex, crazy landscape of independent film distribution today. So each week, I'll be bringing on a filmmaker who has self-distributed or been personally involved in the distribution of their film. My hope is that future filmmakers can take the knowledge gleaned from this show and use it to make their own decisions on how to best distribute their films. Hey, everybody. Today, I'm talking to Ryan Graves, a fellow Portlander who also happens to be filling the role of colorist for the three short films I'm making this summer. Uh, Ryan has started to establish himself in the Portland area as a professional colorist. Uh, but on the show, Ryan and I talk primarily about his film, Emily, uh, about a young married couple struggling to stay together after the husband suffers a crisis of faith. Ryan made the film on a $20,000 budget from a true angel investor, uh, but struggled to find an audience for it due to it being partly received as a faith-based movie, uh, even though it really wasn't intended for that audience. Uh, along the way, Ryan and I touch upon uh, a bunch of topics that are relevant to indie film distribution, including some honest words about predatory distributors and the concept that films are like birthday cakes. You'll have to listen to find out what that metaphor is all about. So let's get right to it. My conversation with Ryan Graves. I've always loved films, always loved movies. Uh, I went to college in a little town in Washington, Spokane, Washington, a little school there called Whitworth University, which is a teeny tiny Christian school. And when I first started school, I thought I was going to be a pastor and after a couple of years realized that's not for me. And so I would have taken like would have gone and became a film major, but they didn't have a film major there because they were such a small school. Yeah. So I took the closest thing, which was the English department and majored in literature. And I was actually really interested in writing about film and critiquing film, being a critic, the critic on the school newspaper. And that was it was really fun being on the school newspaper because like everyone had to be like journalists. But like I signed up for paper and I was like, I'm not going to do any stories. I'm not going to do in, any journalism. All I'm going to do is review one film a week. That's all you're going to get from me. And my yeah. editor was like, OK, <laughs> and they would get yelled at when, you know, they weren't doing like enough journalistic integrity. I'm like, hey, man, I just I just watch movies like <laughs> so. In college, I wasn't necessarily interested in becoming a filmmaker then, but I was interested in working in film and more more than anything, I wanted to write about film. Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of figured out like this is the time when all the newspapers were folding and film critics were getting fired left and right. Yeah. So I was like, OK, I don't think there's a, a future for me as a film critic. <laughs> but the thing I've always appreciated about criticism is you can also you can always criticize a film by making your film you can say right. not like this like this you know it's only going to improve if you're going to put your money where your mouth is yeah. and i think that's what a lot of film critics need to realize it's like you yeah. need to step up your game you can't just <laughs> complain the whole time you need to actually be productive right. and do something yeah so after i graduated i moved to portland because L.A. didn't sound interesting at all, and uh -huh. New York was not an option at all. And Portland was the cool town. This was in 2011. Portland mm -hmm. was the cool place. This was Portlandia time. Yep. And so kind of right away, got a job at a restaurant, movie theater, and made money, you know, with tips and all that. And just started working on screenplays and short films. And that kind of took me to... I made a short film. It got into some festivals. It won some awards. And then one of the regulars at the job I worked at where I was a server, saw it, saw that it won awards. And he's like, do you think you could make a feature film for $20,000? <laughs> didn't know anything at the time. So I was like, you bet I can. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I think he just needed a write-off for his year, but yep. he gave us money to make a movie. And wow. we wrote a script, shot it in my apartment and, you know, bare bones cast and crew got it made. I distributed the film theatrically on my own 
and mm-hmm. we found a digital distributor for getting everything on VOD. And since then, I've kind of pivoted from directly trying to produce movies and more pursuing my current career, which is being a film colorist. And I work as a colorist for commercials, feature films, music videos, documentaries, all that stuff, which is a much better day job than being a server. So yeah, (laughs) for sure. You know, I've told you this in person before, but I I think it's great to like find a place in the industry where you can kind of work as a, you know, as a specialist in a particular niche, you know, and particularly I think color is such an important you know, part of movie making today, that's a great place to be. So that's cool. I also just, I really like your story of like, uh, well, I can't be a critic because nobody's hiring film critics anymore. So I'm just going to make movies, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah much like, more tell, wiser all the film choice. Critics, you know, tell all the filmmakers <laughs> off that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So that's a, that's a great, interesting way to, to get into things. So, yeah. And then, yeah, just, you know, just to kind of go back to the time when you got approached by somebody who had, I guess, $20,000 to, yep. to spend on a movie, you know, what can you, speculate or, or share like what was what was he looking for like what was in it for him to do this did he care what kind of movie it was or i think he's uh, the kind of investor you know they tell you this when you read all the books about film investment that there's certain investors who just think it's cool that mm-hmm. they can make a movie manifest yeah by throwing money at people and then a movie pops up and that's yeah. what happened like yeah. he he saw what we were doing. He's like, they could make a feature film. And we pulled it off. Yeah. And we had to be very creative to get it done at that price. And it wasn't the quality I ever, you know, with only 20000 you can only get so much. Yeah, But sure. we had fantastic actors yeah. um, and fantastic crew. And they did their best with what we could. But he's definitely, he was definitely the kind of investor who's like, I want to see a movie and I want to be responsible for it. His name's John Stinson. He was, you know, he, he worked in the insurance industry. And just wow. had some some money, and wow. is like, let's let's do something fun with it. Oh, that's super cool, and, and you're super lucky that you just kind of ran into that without seeking it out. Because there's people out there that are spending so much effort and time, like trying to find that sort of yeah. unicorn uh, of investors who don't really have that much expect expectation on the back end, and are just kind of want to see their name on the on the top right. of the you know poster. And <laughs> you know. That, and like that's the thing for all filmmakers. It's like you need to be prepared. Like you might. Yeah run into someone who's like, all right, it's happening. And, you know, I didn't necessarily have a script ready right then, but I knew how to write a script because I had been writing scripts for years at that point. And it's like, I knew what to do. And I also just kind of had the common sense. It was common sense. It's like, it needs to be very small. It needs to be an 80 minute film. It needs to be like two people at the most in a scene. Yeah. And and it totally works along those lines. And there's a lot of filmmakers out there that are realizing that and making films, I think at that budget level, recognizing that the, you know, chance for financial return at a higher level are slim. And so in order to make kind of a sustainable, you know, career, quote career, because it's not really a career, but a sustainable, you know, run of making movies that they have to operate at that level. And they're just figuring out all kinds of, you know, ways to do it, you know, and creating interesting content to boot that might not be big theater, you know, big studio kind of stories, but, you know, can be interesting and uh, unique and distinctive in in their own way for that. Right. You know? So I think it's an asset of those films in some sense that they can, you know, kind of push creative boundaries and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's super cool. So did this investor have any, like, do you have any input at all on like what kind of movie he wanted you to make? Like, what No, it was amazing. Might- <laughs> we got to do whatever we wanted. <laughs> wow. Really? Because okay. I think he understood distinctly. He's like, this isn't my wheelhouse. Um, yeah. But I like what you're doing and you've been validated by, you know, these festivals that liked your short films. So you seem to be doing something right. So here you go. Yeah. Which is just a good like micro version of what happens in the studio system is that I don't think anyone at the studios actually understand what they're paying for. I think mm-hmm. they just are grabbing people who are successful in some metric and some of them are actually good at what they're doing. Others are just popular yep. and it it works and people go to their movies and other people are just respected by the critics and you know the studios are like i guess you're respected by the critics so come work for us and then those movies they don't know how to market it and they're like yeah. i don't know someone said that these this was a really respectable filmmaker <laughs> and they bungle the release but you know us right. film fans we find it and we're like ah thank you yeah. for making this in the first yeah. place yeah totally yeah so actually can you tell us a little bit about what the film is and what it's about yeah the film's called emily and it's a movie about a young married couple struggling to stay the, stay together after the husband suffers a crisis of faith. And at that time, 
I was watching a lot of Bergman films. I was watching a lot of the Woody Allen dramas that were just ripoffs of the Bergman films. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, going to a small Christian school, I've always been fascinated by how religion affects us and how we live and how we treat each other. And I love romance films and I love love stories and making a movie that talks about religion and romance was interesting to me. What I didn't understand then was there was no audience for that topic <laughs> because you have someone like Bergman, you have movies like Through a Glass Darkly or you have The Seventh Seal or, mm -hmm. you know, these classic Swedish movies about faith and losing your faith and death and all these things. I thought if I just made a serious movie about religion, then I'd be respected. And it's not that easy and it's not that simple. And Today's movie climate, if you make a movie about religion and it's Christian, they'll probably think it's a faith-based movie that has something to do with Kirk Cameron, which is not at all what I wanted to do. Right. <laughs> and because of that, I made a movie that has swear words and, you know, uh -huh. some sexual content, you know, nothing pornographic in any way, but it's just real about a marriage. Yeah. <laughs> and married couples have sex, I'm afraid right. to tell you. Even even Christian <laughs> ones, right? <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. And, you know, the the people who discovered online, the Christians who are looking for faith based movies were like, oh, it has language. Yeah. And the people oh. who don't really understand what I was doing were just like, oh, it's just a faith based movie. And it's like, no, 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 I'm just going mm. for the Bergman thing. Just kind of got misunderstood. So mm. I don't know what I would have done differently. I think I I think I would have just avoided religion just to get people back on the scent of what I was really saying, which is. It's not necessarily about Christianity. It's just about in a marriage, each person changes dynamically. And how is the relationship going to pivot with it? Yeah. And I wanted to talk about the first crisis of a young marriage because when I was writing it, I was engaged. And when I mm -hmm. shot it, I was a new newlywed. Mm -hmm. And when it was released, I was in my first couple of years of marriage. Yeah, really interesting. And yeah, I mean, I can see... I can see the challenge there that you took on and maybe at the time you weren't even necessarily all that aware that it was a challenge, but the challenge of creating something that has a kind of a Christian theme, but isn't necessarily a faith-based movie, a quote, faith-based movie and finding where that fits into uh, the marketplace. I can see how that would be a challenge. So, yeah. you know, it, it definitely an, an ambitious thing to try that. And, you know, that's what filmmaking is all about, right? We try things and we learn from them, you know? Yeah. So, and, you know, like <laughs> Scorsese does this and, I didn't I haven't seen it, but I read the book of his movie Silence. I read the novel it's based on. Mm -hmm. And I just remember when they announced that, which I it was required reading at my Christian college. And hmm. I'm like, of course, says he's making a movie of this. Hmm. And no one went. <laughs> really? Wow. You know, like it's not it's not a Scorsese hit the way yeah. that Wolf of Wall Street is. Yep. Yep. Audiences, it's tough. It's tricky. Yep. And there's this other idea of there had been this idea of indie cinema of if you build it they will come just like mm -hmm. so long as the movie exists people will go and people mm -hmm. will find it oh yeah and some people still find the movie and i still see new reviews go up on letterboxd or something like that but it's no longer true that mm -hmm. just making it is enough that's yep. that's not enough you need to make a really damn good movie for yep. the people to really show up yeah and even then i mean i think there's a lot of damn good movies that get made and if they don't have some kind of promotional effort behind them they still get lost in the weeds you know totally. because there's so much content out there and yeah. you know like people who are jumping on amazon or netflix or whatever you know even if you're on those platforms like they're searching for either you know the latest tom cruise movie or you know whatever they've heard of or you know sometimes they're searching for what the, the algorithm has figured is their they're yeah. the kind of film, but there's so many of them that it's, you know, how do you get the one that you made to and um, even know, how do you then, get like, to watch that? <laughs> think about that algorithmically. Like if they yeah. get it to the point where you're looking at Amazon Prime and you search for like religious dramas that take a stern look at relationships and faith, you're going to see, you know, Martin Scorsese's Silence. Yep. And then you're going to see Ryan Graves' Emily. Yep. You see one stars Liam Neeson and yep. you start, you see the other one doesn't star Liam Neeson. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I happen to think my actors are in the ballpark of Liam Neeson, but they don't have the name recognition. <laughs> yeah. They're going to pick the one that they're comfy with and familiar yep. with. Yep. And so that's what we're competing against. Like 30 yep. years ago, making a new indie film, putting out in theaters, it's like, well, you're just competing with whatever came out that week. And right. you probably will luck out in your local art house because 
you know, it's not Scorsese every single week. Right, but if right. if people are finding you online, they're always going to see the masterpieces first. Yep. How are you going to cut past those? Yeah, that's hard. Which is no good doubt, competition no for it. us filmmakers. Like we competing yeah. with them. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I yeah, that's true. And and they're, they're, yeah, so there it's I mean it's ironic because there's a sense of kind of democratization, right? That like we're all on kind yeah. of an even playing field yet at the same time <laughs> we're not, you know. Now and, we're going up the, against the masters. Yeah, so. you know, like if Liam Neeson is has his name on a, on a movie, like that's going to be a much much bigger draw than something that doesn't have Liam Neeson on, on yeah. the name of his movie. So it's it's a weird time, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of what this podcast is all yeah, about. It's yeah. kind of trying to decipher the the weirdness of that. So yeah, I mean I'm I'm sort of curious like when you were making the film and can you take me like about what year was that that you were making the film that you were kind of putting it together probably i think we started the conversation in 2014 and i think we filmed in 2015 releasing around 2016 okay maybe before 2016 right and 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 obviously like i think the the distribution landscape at that time was changing pretty rapidly in a lot of ways and has and it's significantly different now than it was back then so you know i'm just curious like at that time what how much thought were you putting into distribution like you know what how much thought were you putting into what am I going to do with this movie once it's made? Or were you, you know, were you even thinking about that? Were you more just like, let's get the movie made and then figure that all out? You know? Yeah. At that time I was still thinking if you build it, they will come. I, I was being completely sincere in my filmmaking and I thought the sincerity is what will be the draw to it because Mm -hmm. I can't compete star power wise. I can't do that. What I can do is sincerely write it and sincerely direct it. And hopefully people will see that. And you know, the, the critics saw that like the Seattle yeah. times gave us a really positive review and this, mm-hmm. and so did the spoke spokesman review and the Portland papers it was all positive. Yeah. It's just about, okay, now when the film is in the can and you're think you're trying to f- figure out your next step, the films that were getting picked up then, like this was the beginning of a 24 and you had all the other indie distributors who the big ones at that time and still are is Sony pictures, classics, and, you know, you have IFC, Magnolia, Roadside Attractions, um, all those guys. They weren't buying movies that were $20,000. So I yep. knew none of those guys would even think about picking my film up. Mm-hmm. You had other niche distributors like Oscilloscope, which was founded by one of the Beastie Boys. Mm-hmm. And they sometimes have, you know, put out films that are made at that budget. But it's always yep. been a genre film. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, the, the most famous examples of super micro budget films have been science fiction films like Primer mm-hmm. was made for mm-hmm. seven grand, but it's a sci-fi mm-hmm. film. And yep. that's what it's, it's playing as. Yep. But a 20,000 drama, I'm going up against the million dollar drama starring yep. Oscar winners. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's hard. And I've definitely like in the podcast that I've listened to about the micro budget filmmaking world, like there there is a lot of talk about how straight dramas are a really hard sell at the low budget level. Yeah. Uh, you know, not to, <laughs> not to add, you know, fuel to the fire of, you know, maybe your disappointment or whatever, but it, just to, you know, by way of conversation, like it's definitely something that I've heard, you know, it's, I mean, like if you were, if you were to, to have this opportunity again, would you do something completely different? Would you do a genre film? Just knowing that, that the chances are better for that? Like how, how, what's yeah. your thought on that? I would do a genre film, but mm-hmm. on my terms and that sounds yeah. really selfish but no. i would not do a horror film i would not do right. a slasher um because you know those are a dime a dozen too and yep. you know you're competing against millions of others just yep. slasher kind of things but you know if i did a horror if i did do a horror film i probably would have done something that was more like an a24 horror film mm-hmm. that was more like art house horror and then mm-hmm. then you have something that is interesting yep. that is that is thoughtful. That is that is yep. fun. Yep. But it's it's just hard because you're like, if you're doing a genre film, like with horror, you you get to lean in the cheapness of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. you get to have the the bad fake blood and mm-hmm. all that stuff. But if you want to do like a really good action film, mm-hmm. like, well, then you need like choreographers, you need stuntmen, you need mm-hmm. all these things, no matter what kind of action film you're doing. And same with sci-fi. It's like, unless you're doing it just like Primer, which is just like inherently lo-fi and inherently not CGI, then you're going to have a tough time getting the CGI on there and makeup effects and all that stuff. So it would still be a minefield no matter how you go about it. 
Yeah. And I mean, you know, given the landscape today, if Primer was made today, I don't know if it would get any attention at all. You know, Primer might end up being just another one of these thousands of films that's on streaming platforms that some people find, some people, you know, most people don't. And it just sits there, you know. And maybe it gets on a list of like most underrated films of 2023. Right. That's right, it. Right, right. And, uh, you know, I think that the only thing to be said for that approach is that it's not that big an investment. You know, if you want to make, if you have a primer and you want to make a primer and you have a good idea for it, you don't have to invest that much of your own personal energy or, you know, investors, if you have them energy or your parents' energy or wherever yeah. you're getting your money from, it doesn't cost that much. You can just do it. And yeah. so the stakes are lower and you just never know. You know, sometimes I think it has to come down to, what are you really making movies for? If you're making right. movies to make money or make your even to make your money back off of them, I'm not sure you're in today's climate. I, you know, maybe you needed to be doing something else, you know. Yeah. Um, but if you're making them at least partly because you just want to be making movies and you want to be putting content out there and seeing what you can do with it and getting whatever audiences you can to watch and enjoy and go to film festivals and do all of those Q and A's and all that kind of thing like that. There's a certain like greatness just in doing that and, and engaging right. that world. And if you can do it super cheap, then, you know, that's a path forward to do that. Yeah. If you go for more expensive stuff, then you, you know, you, you, it's a lot harder for you to be able to just make films for the sake of making films, you know? Right. So, yeah. And I, you know, I think that like, you know, something like primer, like it just, it, it's, it's about timing, you know, and primer just hit yeah. at the right time. It was at a time when the the market hadn't been saturated with super low budget films. It had that just extra quirkiness to it and that originality to it that just captured attention for whatever reason yeah and was just successful on that but it's really hard to like you can't just plan to be that flash in the pan <laughs> you know it, no. it just it doesn't work like that nobody knows anything <laughs> nobody knows you know when something is going to be a hit and when it's not you know so and all every flash in the pan never came from nowhere you know right, right. like tarantino that wasn't his first try like oh, Reservoir no. Dogs was not his first no. try. No, no. So no. much time and effort was put into that movie, but he had yeah. made stuff before then. He had yeah. been around before yeah. then acting. And same with Linklater. Yeah. You know, if you watch a movie like Slacker, it's like, this is not his best work, you guys. It's just right. really interesting. We right. know he's so much better than things that are happening here. Right. And we right. know that sure. he had tried so hard on other projects that didn't make it, that didn't yeah. work out. Yeah, yeah. And so if anyone's like in the same boat where they're just hoping that they can be in a flash in the pan, it's like you might like it just who knows? Right. It just might all work out. Yeah. But I think like I think a, a, a better kind of more realistic approach is to play the long game, you know, yeah. is, keep going. is to just plan keep out and stuff. Yeah. Plan out your life you know, to the extent that you can plan your life. But and, and it is a life. It's not just a you know, it's not just like something you do. It's not just a hobby. It's a life. But plan out your life in a way that you are looking to make, you know, one movie, then the next, then the next, then the next. And they're all stepping stones to wherever you end up, you know, and that might be stepping stones to bigger and bigger budget films and some big success that propels you forward. Or they might just be little films for, you know, five years or, you know, five films or 10 years or whatever that you just derive satisfaction yourself in just doing that, you know? Yeah, you Um, And they never take off. Like if you're going to do independent filmmaking, you've got to enjoy what you're making in the first place. That doesn't mean be selfish, but I think the reason you're making it is that you are saying, there's this great movie I've seen. It's in my brain. And I want you all to see the movie that I've seen because I thought it was really good. Right. And so just working on that, it's like, if no one in the world watches it, you've watched it and you yeah. like it and you yeah. made it exist. It may yeah. it's it never is going to like match the level of how you saw it in your head. And yeah. that's the same problem that Scorsese has. He thinks the same thing about every project that he yeah. does. So don't yeah. take don't feel bad about it. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think those are great words. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, like, I'm curious, like having come out the other side of Emily, how much, you know, maybe it wasn't the sort of financial or audience getting success that you hoped it would be, but how do you feel about it from that point of view? I mean, was it a satisfying experience for you to make it? Are you glad you made it? Are you happy with the result? Like, how do you feel about that now, just from your own personal kind of artistic, you know, sensibility? It was the best thing I could have been. That's the best thing I could have produced at the time. Right. It's the best uh, on the job training I could have given myself all across the board. Mm -hmm. And it gave me super valuable lessons. And I think I would have been if I didn't do it and I'm still trying to make movies now, I think I'd be far more ignorant about the industry and about storytelling and filmmaking itself as an art and 
because I don't regret the story I told in Emily, but mm-hmm. I do regret that there wasn't a market for it, mm-hmm. which, you know, that's that's art and commerce and that's filmmaking. Yep. yep. <laughs> you know, you need people to go see it. It's show business, right. not show friends. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing I learned from that was the marketplace and mm-hmm. audiences. And it's not to say that I don't have that reaction of uh, they're just not sophisticated like me. That's why they didn't go. It's like, no, they just didn't. That's not where they're at. That's not what they're yeah. looking for. Because yep. I think a lot of filmmakers will make their movie. And I think every movie that every filmmaker make is like a birthday cake. And they mm-hmm. go, they're saying, I made your birthday cake. And some filmmakers like Wes Anderson will say, I made you a birthday cake. My favorite. <laughs> yeah. and you yeah. can see like it's him just showing you all the things that he loves about movies yeah. Yeah. and scorsese can do the same thing too yeah and sometimes we like what his favorite is and sometimes right. we don't right yeah <laughs> and sometimes it's not for us yeah and so that's what i'm trying to figure out is that i i kind of want to make a birthday cake that is your favorite mm-hmm. and i think that's what good filmmakers are doing is figuring out well, what do you like right and and when they find out what they like that's when the the creative filmmaker goes, well, have you ever thought about putting this on top? Yeah. Like usually yeah. you have cherries on top, but, but what if you put this on top? Right. And then it goes, oh, no one's ever done that before. It's like, <laughs> isn't that great? Doesn't that taste delicious? Right. And I think that's where you get, because no one's inventing anything anymore. We're all yeah. just innovating. Like I was yeah. watching uh, Last Crusade the other day and it's just Buster Keaton again. Yeah. Everything that's going on is Buster Keaton. Yep. And that's just what Spielberg figured out. It's just right. good physical comedy. He's just repackaging it with Harrison Ford. And it's great. Right. And yep. I think that's people are like, oh, I like my chocolate birthday cake with Buster Keaton in it. He's like, oh, yep. great. Have you ever <laughs> considered a Harrison Ford as your Buster Keaton? No. <laughs> and it's amazing. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. I love that analogy. I, th- I think that really holds up. Um, you know, I the, the only thing that I would say is that I think that there's a danger creatively. There's a danger going too far in that direction. And that is mm-hmm. that you don't want to pander. Right. And and filmmakers who pander do fail. Some yeah. of them succeed. But but I I personally, when I feel I'm being pandered to, that that's a big red flag to me. That that makes me cringe when I see movies that I think are sort of, you know, they're not really, they're not somebody else's voice. They're somebody else trying to Try, you know, blatantly trying to attract me and not engage me, you know, and, and, and not engage me in a, at a real level. I want to see what you have to say. I don't want to see what you think I want to hear. Um, and so I think that, you know, you have filmmakers have to be careful of that. You know, that's what makes yeah. it all so fascinating, though, I think, is it's all about kind of finding the line that you want to tread and, and the balance between those two forces of, you know, pandering versus I'm just going to spew my own vanity project, you know, which you don't yeah. want to do either. You know, there's a line there somewhere. And there's, we're all trying to figure out where that is. You know? There's a lot of films today, contemporary films, that the storytellers are trying to say, I know what you value so i'm going to write in scenes of things that you value yeah of you know um, adversity adversity being squashed by my protagonist who's going to fight against directly they're going to fight against racists or sexists and we're going to say that's wrong and that's bad it's like right yeah you're not breaking any new ground here you're just kind of indulging that that aspect even like I was watching a snippet of a Guy Ritchie movie. Can't remember which one it is, but it's got Colin Farrell in it. And, you know, the scene is Colin Farrell's in this fast food joint. And it's a typical Guy Ritchie character where he's a tough, mm-hmm. stiff upper lip British, or maybe he's Irish in that. But, you know, yep. and he sees these punk kids that are all 13, 14 years old, you know, being punks with the the customers in there. And Colin Farrell pulls one over on all of them. He like verbally takes them down. And I think he smacks them around a little bit. And yeah. the whole point of the scene is like, uh, don't you hate those punk ass 13 year olds that, you know, you see running around, look at this character, take them down. It's like, that's right. not very, I mean, maybe in context of the movie, it works, but out of yeah. context, it just seems like you're just trying to, you've, you've created this scenario where you're like, look how awesome my protagonist is. It's mm-hmm. not storytelling. Mm-hmm, Give mm-hmm. a storytelling where you have a, a protagonist and an actual antagonist, not just yep. these made up pawns that you can throw at them in a <laughs> perfect fictional setting. Yeah. Nothing against Guy Ritchie. I love Guy Ritchie, but no, I no, I totally agree with you. I, I actually, you know, I'm I'm I have mixed feelings about Guy Ritchie. You know, I, I like some of his stuff and I don't like some of his stuff. And I think a lot of it is kind of because of that, is because I think sometimes he's 
kind of operating at a kind of a more surface level and he's kind of going for the quick, you know, the, the sort of the quick gag and not really actually getting into, you know, kind of deeper layers or irony and not that you need to do that all the time, but I think the best filmmakers kind of do, even when yeah. they're doing something silly, like some kind of silly, stupid comedy or, you know, crime thriller or whatever, like they hit at something that's a little bit deeper. That's where the best films are is when yeah. they manage to kind of have this surface of something that is entertaining, but underneath there are these... You know, there's this kind of commentary that isn't too over the top or on the nose either. You know, like yeah. I said, it's about treading that line always, you know. Because if so, you're trying to yeah. if you're trying to serve the cultural moment, you will yeah. be so outdated in a couple of years. Yeah. 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 We will yeah. all have forgotten about your movie. Totally true. Totally true. So if you could like what was it? So once you got Emily done and you had like a, a producer, right? You had somebody I, I assume was sort of a partner. Yeah, in, in making my, the film. my partner, Kelly Song, he's yeah. been with me the whole way. He co-wrote the story and the screenplay with me and he produced gotcha. the whole thing. I wouldn't have been able to make it without him. He was right. my consigliere and my enforcer. He made everything happen. Yeah. Awesome. I wish I had somebody like that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, not about me. So like once you got the film done, you know, just kind of take us through the history. Like what did you actually do? Uh, did you enter it in? to festivals? Did you contact distributors? Like what, what was your plan if you had one or what kinds of things did you try to get the movie out there? I skipped festivals altogether because okay. I knew it was going to be misunderstood and that hmm. should have been a red flag. So you already I, knew I that. I was figuring that it out. I was figuring it out. I'm like, oh, oh, uh oh. <laughs> so how were you figuring that out? I'm, I'm just curious. Like, how did you know if you hadn't had you already put it before test audiences? Because like, the friends and family screenings, that was the reactions I was getting. Is uh, that they really liked it, but but. Yeah. But what yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, so is it is it faith based? And I'd be like, no, it's not. <laughs> right. Right. And so from there, I knew that the festivals wouldn't wouldn't understand because they were looking for, you know, they all all the festivals want to have the next flash in the pan thing. And yep. having stodgy faith based to like how they would have perceived it. Mm hmm religious dramas they would have been like Ugh. and you know there are a handful of christian film festivals and i like i was disqualified from even thinking about sending them stuff because they're like do not send us anything with language or anything blah 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 and yeah. it's like okay then you're wow. not getting it yeah <laughs> so i knew that that wasn't an option but i still i still had optimism that there would have there was a path for success. I just knew that film festivals are highly programmed, and so I didn't see anywhere it would fit in, and that's okay. Yeah. yeah. So, and also, I knew that distributors were not buying twenty thousand dollar dramas, mm -hmm. and that's something that I was kind of waking up to. I was waking up mm -hmm. to a lot of things as I was going through this. I was like, mm -hmm. "Oh, right, no one's going to buy this because the only you know twenty thousand dollar films are sci fi or horror films." Yep. And so the theatrical route I knew I had to do myself, which was wise on my part. I should have been much more ambitious because I played it in about, oh, I played it in Seattle, Spokane, Portland, Eugene, Corvallis, a couple theaters I knew in Pennsylvania of all places. Hmm. Had I more resources my end and more energy, I, I could have pushed it in probably 15, 20, 30 more theaters. Yep. But most of the theaters that I played the film in, I did Q&As at, and that was the biggest help for the box office every weekend mm. is that uh, when I did a Q&A, people would show up. Mm -hmm. That's they would, great. They would go. And, yeah. you know, it was a combination of, you know, I was single-handedly distributing this film. I was sending screeners to the theaters for them to watch, and then they would book it. I would mm -hmm. handle the booking process, handle the, the business terms with them. I would handle sending the screener to the newspaper so that they would review it and make mm -hmm. sure that the review would come out the week that it was playing in sending out marketables to the newspapers so that they would run ads for it. Same thing for the theaters, making sure that they had what they needed, cutting the trailer, sending the trailer to them, that they were showing the trailer a few weeks ahead of time. It helped that I worked at a movie theater. By that time, I had actually leveled up to the, the other job I had at that company, which I was working for. The tech side of this company, the, the company is called Living Room Theaters, and they had another company that was part of it called Preludio. And Preludio made the technology that actually played the film in the theater. Since we moved away from 35 millimeter projection and went to digital, they had been using hard drive distribution. Mm -hmm. And what Preludio was doing is we don't need to do hard drives. We can just upload it over the internet to a server on, at your theater. And so I had contacts with all these theaters, and they weren't 
playing it because they were doing me a favor. They actually wanted to play it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they they saw that there was business sense in giving it a try. And yep. the theater. So you weren't that, you weren't four walling at all. This was no, no, like, no. Okay, was it sort of like a fifty fifty box office split that kind of arrangement or a minimum guarantee? The typical deal. I'm trying to remember. It was two hundred fifty dollars or thirty five percent of the gross. Huh. Yeah. Wow. And so yeah, getting a minimum guarantee out of a theater. I don't know if I've I've heard of that before, or maybe it happens yeah, all the it was time. A sta- and I just it was a standard yeah. deal then. Okay. It might have changed since then. I haven't done any theatrical bookings recently. Okay. You know, so four wall, you will lose money. You can't make money four walling a theater. You will lose money. You will lose right. a lot of money. So uh, I would say if you're thinking about doing something like this, you have to you have to be able to convince the theater to run your film for a mm-hmm. week at least. Mm-hmm. And to, it needs to be in their favor to run the film, which mm-hmm. as I went through this process, that's what opened my eyes. It's like, oh, this is what it's about. You write your movie, you make your movie. And this is the like long game your movie has to go through. Your movie has to impress the sales agent who wants to represent your movie at the festival mm-hmm. where deals are being made. Mm-hmm. That sales agent has to show the distributors a movie that they want to buy. Mm-hmm. Now the distributors have to show that movie to all the movie theaters and the mm-hmm. movie theaters have to say, I want to run it. Right. The movie theaters have to say, oh, this is a good movie that we know audiences want to want to want to see. We have to convince audiences to go see it. So yep. you have all these gauntlets yep. that your one movie has to pass. Yep. And so all the films I've worked on since then and de- and developed, and I haven't been able to shoot them yet because I need more than $20,000 now. <laughs> yeah. That's what's guiding my vision as I'm working with my partner on his screenplays and on my screenplays. It's like, it has to be meticulously well thought out, mm. impressing everyone down the down the line. Right. Yeah, for sure. I, it's just like gatekeeper after gatekeeper after gatekeeper, right? Although it, it does sound like with Emily, you kind of bypassed all of that and went straight. I mean, not all of yeah, it, I and guess, if you but went straight to the theaters. I don't yeah. have to impress the sales agent, the festival, yeah. the distributor, all those people. I just did it myself. And, yep. you know, if I was really hardcore about it, I think we could have made our budget back. We mm-hmm. only made about $4,000. Okay. Show me another drama that was made for $20,000 that made anything near that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm yeah, making anything is 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 always good and yeah, I totally agree. Uh, the thing is is you're not including in that $4,000 like or you're not including in the $20,000 budget, you're not including your time, I assume, right. to do all that work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have to just kind of accept that that time is just totally free. You know, you're never going to if you start billing billable hours for that time. Oh my you'll gosh. Never ever fucking make your money back, right? Exactly. And it, it's just like Everything I've heard, like self-distributing in that way, like getting theaters to book, you know, one by one, book your film and then, you know, going to Q and A's and, you know, all mm-hmm. that kind of thing, the travel and stuff like that. Like, it's just a huge amount of work. Yeah. And so, you know, it might be a way to make some money for your film, but it's like so much work. There's got to be something enticing about it to to jump in and, and do it, you know. It's your job. <laughs> It's your yeah. job. Yeah, yeah. You know? Like right. your, your film's not finished, man. Yeah. Like yeah. you directed it and it's done. Yep. And post-production's finished and it's completely done. Right. Now it's your job to go release it. Yeah. You've got to get it in front of people. You've got to do the Q&As. That's your job too. Right. And you're when people are like, I'm going to make a movie, it's like you have no idea how much more work <laughs> yeah. you're you're putting on for yourself. It's a luxury that Hollywood filmmakers just make it and let the company yep. they're working for distribute it and do everything. Yeah. That's Although- the luxury. Yeah. Although I do think a lot of filmmakers, what they do is they just make their films, you know, they make them super cheap, but they make their films and then they put them on film hub and like, just they, that's it. That's all they do. And they yeah. hope the hope for the best, you know, and most of them probably don't get that best, but they get a trickle of income maybe. And <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of what, what, what this podcast is about is trying to get to some of that, you know, information a little bit more, but, but yeah, it's, it's like, if you're not going to put in the work to promote your film after your film is made, you probably can't expect that you're ever going to make very much money off of it at all. Yeah. And even if, if you, you do it, all that work, <laughs> you know, yeah, if go you ahead. own it, you got to yeah. sell it. It's yeah. yours to sell. Yeah. yeah. You're, yeah. you're the salesperson. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you yeah. have to, that's not what you signed up for. You signed up to be an artist, but you yep. signed up to be an artist in a very expensive art form. And yep. so you have to respect the commerce behind it. Even if it's just a $20,000 film, you are, yep. you are working with a commerce. 
Yep. Totally makes sense. So, but it sounds like even for you, like there was kind of a limit to how much that you were going to put into that. I mean, you've kind of alluded a couple of times that you could have done more, but you kind of chose not to. I mean, was it just too exhausting? Was it not worth it? I think it it, it kind of, you know, ran its course. Yeah. Because, you know, it got to the point where it was six months out from its initial release. And especially then there was a, a life cycle of, you know, your movie plays in theaters for a few months and then it goes on VOD. Yep. And so I figured I got it into Seattle. I got into in, to these other cities. I got these positive views on Rotten Tomatoes. I think, you know, I probably I th- at that time, I figured that's probably enough to get the next cycle of income, which was mm-hmm. digital distribution at that point. And I was like, right. OK, now I'm going to focus because it's just me. So it's what am I where am I going to focus my energy? I can focus on the diminishing returns of theatrical. Mm-hmm. Um, because then I would be playing in theaters that I couldn't go do Q and A's at where right. the movie would make $186 at a, a random theaters. Like that's just right. not, you know, worth my time, yeah. which is why yeah. indie distributors have the minimum guarantee. It's like, I'm not even think about putting my film in your theater unless you pay me $250, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> you know? So I was like, all right, let's find a digital distributor. And we did find one, Yeah. but the tragedy is we haven't seen any income for it because- yeah. My thesis statement for most digital distributors you haven't heard of, they're parasites. Yes, they technically get the job done. They get it on all those platforms like Prime Video and uh, Vudu and, you know, you can Google and you can rent it on all these platforms, but Mm -hmm. they're going to keep all their revenue and they're going to do creative accounting to show that they don't actually owe you anything. Yep. Because they're parasites and that's yep. what they do. And yep. there's, there's scum. <laughs> they're, <laughs> yeah. right. they're real scum. Because Don't hold back, Ryan. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> they, they're, they're really just, you know, they're the reason why independent filmmakers aren't making real money. Yeah. They're, they're kind of, they're kind of taking advantage of the sort of desperation of filmmakers to get their films out there. They're like, okay, these, these filmmakers really want to get their films out there. So we're going to kind of put a carrot in front of them, you know, get them to right. chase the carrot, but then we're never really going to share the carrot with them. Yeah. It sounds um, great, but it yeah. ultimately it's thievery of what's yeah. going on, but yeah. it yeah. lesson learned. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and, <laughs> and you're learned. still like, you're still, what's your, what, what's your period of kind of exclusivity with them? Like, when can you get the movie I back? I think it's whatever. wrapping up soon. I think I oh, can write okay. to them and say, all right, we're done. Right. We'll, we'll right. Move on. Well, that's not, that's not bad. Cause I think yeah. a lot of filmmakers will sign, you know, like a 10 year deal or something like that. They can't get ownership of their film back for 10 years. It's crazy. Yeah. So if it's shorter, you know, if it's like only two years, that's not bad or whatever it is. I don't know what you released it in what, 2017, 18, I guess, I'm guessing something yeah, like that. Yeah. 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 Okay. So it's like five years, but yeah. When, when you, when you signed with them, did you have any sense of what you were signing up for? That you I really gonna... didn't. I really didn't, didn't understand the business okay. of digital distribution in the first place. And I didn't really okay. understand what I was getting myself into. So, yeah. you know, lesson learned. Like, yeah, I, I take responsibility for my actions. And yeah. at that time, I was completely ignorant of what I was getting myself into in the first place, right. Right. even though I thought I understood. I really didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and a lot of things were in flux back then. And I yeah. think the kind of information that we have now, we wasn't nearly as available back then because dis- digital distribution was still kind of forming at that time, yeah. I think, you know, whereas now there's a lot of kind of established patterns, but I think back then it was still kind of like fumbling around figuring yeah. out, you know, it, is Netflix going to pay a million dollars for a movie right. or not? You know, like all those kinds of things. And now, no, Netflix <laughs> is not going to pay a million dollars. They're not going to pay $20,000 for a movie. Yeah. You know? Even still, we're still um, figuring it out. That's what all yeah. these strikes are about. That's why the WGA yeah, yeah. is striking. That's why SAG is striking. It's like, yep. they, we need to figure out a better financial pathway for all the ways that people are watching movies. Yep, yep. And the digital distributors are keeping a lot of that revenue. Yeah, totally. And it's not just, it shouldn't go just towards me. It should go towards the people who are in SAG and WGA. They deserve that revenue stream. Well, yeah. I mean, I think like if nothing else, I think that there's something about the current system that just, you know, the people who put the most into the movie are the ones who see the least out of it. And that's just not fair. Like, yeah. you know, you can say all you want about whether the film is, you know, a good film and whether it's worth audiences paying for it and all that stuff. But, you know, if audiences do pay for it, you know, the fact that filmmakers still don't see that you know, a benefit to that is just crazy. You know, yeah. like like once once somebody wants to see my movie, I should be able to count on seeing a little bit of money from that. <laughs> right. So, uh, and yet we're not these days, you know, in, in most cases. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, that's ultimately what every independent filmmaker needs to understand moving yeah. forward is that as soon as you partner with a big company, like a yeah. giant company, 
they're going to keep your money. They're not yeah. going to give you money. Right. Um, they're going right. to, maybe you are lucky and they'll give you some money, but they're going right. to keep as much of your money, your money. They're going to keep as much of your money as possible because you're the one who made it. Yep. They keep what they put in, which is they're probably marketing your film and yep. they, they deserve, maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. they deserve, they deserve that fee. They deserve it. Yep. Everything that they put effort into that in that regard, but they need to give you your money too. Right. Because that movie is yours. You made it. You're you're the reason it's in the marketplace. And the and so you need yep. to get paid. Well, yours. yeah. I mean, I wish there was some kind of force. Like, I don't know if it would be legislation or something that would just say that, like, it's illegal to acquire <laughs> a film without paying some kind of minimum guarantee to, to the filmmaker. Like, yeah. you can't, you know, and that would keep a lot less films from being distributed. But I don't know if that's a bad thing. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I I, I also believe in the dem dem democratization of filmmaking and, and all that kind of thing, like, like the ability of me to make a film and just put it out on the internet. So there has to be some kind of like way for me to self-distribute. But if I'm going to go with an actual distributor, a corporate distributor, like it seems like it just it's unfair for them to not give me a piece of whatever pie they're getting, you know, right from the right, yeah. right from the get go. That's just business. Like we're yeah. all learning our lessons economically. And there was a time where it worked out great for the majority of indie filmmakers. It was a great yeah. time for the filmmakers in the 90s because the theatrical art house scene was great for those guys. Yeah. Um, Although, and, you know, I have to take a little bit of issue with that though, because we don't really know. I mean, there were, there were thousands of movies still back then being made yeah. that weren't successful. And we only heard about the successful ones, you right, know, right. probably not nearly as many as are being made today. Like it's, it's the, the problem is it has magnified by a couple of orders yeah. of magnitude, but you know, it was still, you know, making a film was no guarantee. It was, it's, back then, it was still you know? difficult, but there yeah. was, there was much more, it was not nearly as difficult to make some cash in the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and right. in the aughts, you had DVD revenue. And yeah. Yeah. maybe you didn't get theatrical, but you probably found a DVD distributor that would put you in a thousand blockbusters. Yep. And that yep. was that yep. was great. That or like Walmarts. You know, I've, yeah. I've had a lot of filmmaker on here talked about how, you know, back in those days, they could get some revenue from like, you know, just DVDs and on the shelves of Walmarts or, yeah. or you know, those kind of box stores, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's gone now, too. <laughs> yeah. And so now now it's just the only thing that's left is digital distribution or theatrical distribution. Like I said, a lot of there's just a lot of companies out there that are parasites and you have to be mm -hmm. extremely careful and really know your rights, know yeah. what you're getting yourself into. And if if it's theatrical, I really do think you could probably figure out how to do it yourself. Like, like look at what other filmmakers have done mm -hmm. and just learn from them, hire them as consultants, pay them <laughs> like 200 bucks to have, you know, a Zoom meetings thing in part <laughs> wisdom yeah. and say, just do this, 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 and you, yeah. you know, you'll make it happen. And I think that's the thing is that us filmmakers, us artists need to take responsibility as business people because we are creating a product and it's our responsibility to shepherd that product to the market. Mm -hmm. And I know you guys are hating that I'm calling your movie a product, but it mm -hmm. is. It's mm -hmm. a piece of art that's been commodified. Yep. And so it's both and. Yep. And you want the audience to treat it as a piece of art, mm -hmm. but you need to also have them treat it as a product so that you can get your paycheck so you can take care of your family. Yep. Totally makes sense. So uh, yeah. Did you have any kind of like legal representation when you were reviewing this contract at all? Or was it just, did you just no. kind of go? Yeah. <laughs> because okay. you know, I didn't have any money to hire. Yeah. One. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and that's I, you the know, scale of what you're doing is like, yeah, yeah. you only have $20,000. So you're your own legal representation. I know. Right. You can, you could like easily use half that budget hiring a lawyer to review these kinds of contracts for you. So yeah, it, it's a, yeah, that's a, it's a tough decision to make, but I do hear a lot about filmmakers who talk about how they've avoided some of those pitfalls by hiring lawyers, you know, to yeah. look for those little fine print <laughs> clauses that give all kinds of ways out for the distributors to pay you money. You know, I'm finding that, um, you know, when it comes to very generic issues, yeah, like some entertainment lawyers, you, you can get a free half hour or 45 no. minutes from them. Just be like, hey, just trying to figure out this this thing. Can you just tell me this thing? And right. they might right. be generous enough to be like, yeah educate you and say good yeah. luck yeah well <laughs> and, i think there, there's also a lot of resources online now that probably didn't exist back when you were doing this thing i mean just yeah. you know just go and watch you know jay horton's youtube videos you yeah. know or something like that and you know because he's he's put out so much you know like you know there are there are lots of filmmakers have learned a lot of these lessons i think for us so that now we can leverage you know their 
experience to avoid some of the really more obvious pitfalls, but yeah, yeah it's still, it's yeah, still, I didn't lose my shaky. shirt, you know, I didn't, yeah, yeah, you know, nothing yeah. went wrong. It's just nothing. Went right. Wrong. Did, did, did your investor ever have any sort of like disappointment that this didn't no, turn I up think, well, I think he, he didn't care. I think he knew that it was a write-off. I think he yeah. knew that <laughs> it was just a, like in, in a certain sense, he got what he paid for because he yeah. got a movie to exist. Yeah. And it, yeah. Cause uh, other productions, you know, can fall apart and that money can be wasted. And, right. You know, nothing to show for. Yeah. Um, but he got a film that got good reviews and that did like it. Watch it. They liked it. And, you know, that's just investment for you. Yep. Yep. You win some, you lose some. Yeah, totally. Right. And and it, like if you're investing in films, you should be ready to lose. You know, you're going to lose. Yeah. You, you most, yeah. I think statistically you mostly lose. Yeah. But when, oh, yeah. when you win, it's a, it is a gold rush. You can win big. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I, I think that's, you know, but I think, you know, if you looked at like, if you looked at the statistics of all of the money that gets invested into films all across the world and how much, you know, like if you can somehow sum all that up, you can't really, but you know, yeah. somehow you could be God and sum all that up. Yeah. And then you looked at the, you know, profits of that or, you know, lack thereof, you know, the profits yeah. would be a much time would be much smaller. Like, you yeah. know, most, you know, the, the grand total of gains on investments in film is less than the you know, amount invested. I don't, I'm not expressing it very well, but you know what yeah, I mean? I, yeah, like, I get you. Yeah. It's, it's not a, it's by statistics alone, it's not a winning proposition. You know? Right. So, right. so, so you've, you know, since, since making Emily, you've kind of developed a, a professional career for yourself that is in, you know, is related to the industry, which right. I think is great. Keeps you in the industry, gives you a way to earn a paycheck. But I think you've alluded a couple of times that you're still, you're still working on some projects and working yeah. towards making, you know, more features at some point in the future. Uh, do you want to talk about that anymore? Is there anything more you can divulge about what yeah. you're into these days? I, I had been still writing and I have a few screenplays that I'd like to produce at some point. I haven't had any time to write because I've been trying to get my business of being a colorist, you know, going and it is going, but it takes a lot of work to, yeah. to make that happen. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm still working with my partner, Kelly song, and he's got some fantastic scripts that he's got written. And we're currently working on one that I wrote that he's taking a pass at. And the plan right now is to make it for $300,000. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a, it's a romantic thriller mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a genre film through and through, but it's got interesting characters, interesting storytelling that we find compelling. And we, yeah. we think other people will find compelling. Also, it has the elements that will be attractive to international sales agents, Mm -hmm. to international distributors, to uh, domestic distributors, to art house theaters in the U.S., to art house theaters in Europe. You know, we really are are starting to think about, okay, there's lots of opportunities Mm -hmm. for every movie and Mm -hmm. thinking about every waterfall of revenue of the movie theaters, the digital distributors, cable channels, <laughs> you know, airlines, yeah, yeah, you know, cruises. Like movies get seen everywhere, and so you yeah. got to get your movie out there and right. get a part of that. Right. So, are those strategies of ways to get your movie into all of those markets? Is it kind of informing how you're actually writing the movie? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's just making it a better movie because yeah. I'm thinking about. You see this with someone like Tom Cruise. He's so passionate about audiences enjoying mm-hmm. his film. And mm-hmm. I think that's why a movie like Top Gun Maverick is so compelling. Yeah. Because he's thinking about how the audience is going to chew on it. And yeah. he's thinking of, he's always thinking every second, I'm giving them a birthday cake. I'm giving them a birthday cake. Yeah. yeah. And doing it in that way that's not indulging them. And right. it's, but also giving them exactly what they want. Yeah. And so that's, that's what I'm trying to do with these new films that I'm developing is trying to retain my voice and to retain Kelly's voice as a writer director, because he'll be directing this film and making sure that his individuality shines through and that he has that opportunity to say, have you ever considered having this on your cake and mm-hmm. and wowing an audience that way, but also understanding what their audience, the audience wants, because I, I, you know, regardless of the conversation of filmmakers and film goers, I think there's always been this disconnect of when an audience doesn't like something, I think a lot of the time they didn't understand what they were going into. Mm-hmm. And I hear complaints all the time of like, oh, it, I didn't like how it did this, this and this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, 
you went to a McDonald's and you were upset that they gave you a cheeseburger and fries. <laughs> like right. you went into a McDonald's thinking that you were going to get a steak. Yeah. And yeah. That's on you. You had the wrong expectations and they were doing something completely different or vice versa. Or you went to the steakhouse and you just wanted a cheeseburger and fries. Like that's on you, brother. Right. <laughs> you, you, didn't, you didn't do the research. But, you know, that's just any anything we consume, whether it's mm-hmm. like a TV show or music or Re- actual restaurants where you mm-hmm. just you, you're you're being educated and so mm-hmm. i don't know i i think ultimately we'll succeed somehow in making the film that we want to make it's mm-hmm. just going to be a bet no matter what it's going to be a bet whether or not the audience is going to react to it yeah for sure well it sounds like to me anyway that you've achieved a kind of a good middle ground yeah we talked earlier about walking the line like you've achieved a good line between kind of making what you want as art and yeah pandering to an audience, you know, or pandering to business, pandering to, you know, grabbing money and nothing else. And, right. you know, the it's always something, something in between in most cases, I think. And it sounds like you're kind of going about it in, in a smart way to kind of be where you want to be on that line. So yeah, yeah, thanks. yeah, super cool. So yeah, we're kind of running up to the hour mark here. I know that like when you first approached me or at some point when we talked about the podcast, you did want to talk a little bit about your experience, like actually working in this kind of post-production world and packaging these, you know, the, the the packages of movies that went out and got distributed digitally. Uh, did yeah. you talk talk about that experience at all? Did you have any words of wisdom from that experience that you wanted to impart? Well, just I guess to all filmmakers, you know, speaking as your colorist uh, to everyone, like I'm Papa Colorist to all of you. you know, <laughs> right. I I want you to remember that as you're making the film, when you're in the edit, I think there's like this element of the colorist a lot of independent filmmakers forget about what the colorist can bring to your movie. Mm-hmm. And there's so much that can be done to the visual aesthetic and the, like the actual, the literal packaging of it too, of the mastering of your film that you can make your film and premiere. But if you export it wrong and you have the wrong bit rate and you have the wrong chroma subsampling, then your movie's not going to look as good as it should have. Mm-hmm. And you know, wherever you're at, whatever market you're in, please find a colorist to help you finish your film yeah. and to give it the aesthetic that it needs and the color palette it needs, but also having a technician in the room with your film and making sure that it's looking at its best, its yeah. literal best. Right. And, you know, that's one of the services I do is I make DTPs, which is what movie theaters use. That's the file format. And mm-hmm. if you think you can just go on YouTube and say, how do you make a DCP? Brother, man, I hope you understand the color science of what you're doing and right. understand what the XYZ color space is and all these very complicated things, which is why you need to find technicians, which is why independent filmmaking is so tough is because you need technicians and they yep. <laughs> they yep. cost money. Yeah. But if you're working on your film and you're work- looking at your budget, remember that final step of mm-hmm. the color and getting it packaged to go to theaters so it can be seen literally, literally in its best light. Yep. Totally. I, I totally makes sense. And I, I couldn't agree with you more on that aspect of it. You know that you and I have talked about that, yeah. you know, privately, how important that is to me personally, as I come upon making some some shorts this summer. And even for my shorts, I want to make sure that I've got a professional colorist that can do yeah. good things with with the visual, uh, you know, effects that I have in mind. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think that those are great words. And, you know, by all, all things considered, I think coloring, I, you know, I, we still haven't found a good noun yeah. for it. Colorism, you know, right. <laughs> I don't know, but you're a colorist, but you can't really call it colorism. Right. Right. Whatever it is, whatever that thing is, it's not that expensive. It's not that big a part of your budget in finishing yeah. your movie. And yet the difference that it can make in terms mm-hmm. of the quality of your movie is huge, I think. So it's a it's a great value to invest yeah. some money in that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's what I discovered when I finished my film is that I didn't I had my editor do the color and he's yeah. not really a he, he can do it, but it's not what he right. does. And right. so it's I was like why doesn't this look as good as other movies? Yeah. It's like, well, yeah. there's so much more you can do to this movie. Yeah. That's what, in our, like in our day with the technology of the cameras that we have mm-hmm. that are affordable cameras that mm-hmm. we can use, mm-hmm. it gets so much good quality in the digital negative yeah. on the sensor on right. your digital card. You're right. getting great picture quality to begin with. Right. So don't mess it up and not have a colorist touch it. Yeah. Don't waste it. Yeah. It's all, it's all there to be brought out. You don't want to waste it. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Great words. Totally agree. Anything else you want to cover that we didn't cover? Anything you wanted to get to? I, I just want to put the encouragement out to all filmmakers that if you're 
wanting to make a movie or you have a movie, remember it's your movie. Don't mm. give it away. It's yours. You're a business. You should have a production company and you should be monetizing your film and any revenues that that film generates. Remember that that revenue is your revenue and you're sharing that revenue with partners who are helping make that. You're sharing it with the movie theater that sells the tickets and markets the film on your behalf. If you do have a distributor of that's a theatrical distributor or a digital distributor, they get a share of that revenue because they're putting in work and mm -hmm. they they get a share of that revenue, but they don't they don't own all the profits. Yep. You know, and yep. just remember that going into your deals, if you're if you're signing your film away to them, have a really good reason to sign away everything to them. You know, mm -hmm. they better make you <laughs> the king of cinema. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do. If and only I, <laughs> I see I see too many parasites exploit filmmakers and it's not right. Yep. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> well, thank you. I don't want to end on a negative, yeah, a, a no, negative note, but I, yeah. I just want to say believe in yourself, believe in your film and believe that people are going to watch it, even if it's something that you think is really obscure. Yep. You probably thought of the idea of your film because you saw an obscure film that you liked. Yep. That you yep. were you dug. And you right. know, like a movie like Primer, that's an obscure movie. Yep. And a lot of us dig it. Yeah. <laughs> so Absolutely. maybe your thing people will dig. Yep. But maybe they won't, but don't take it personally. Yeah. And just keep going, I think. Yeah. I mean, we we talked about this a few times, but just keep making movies, you know. Yeah. Like it it takes more than one movie sometimes. It sometimes takes five, you know, uh, and or ten, or I don't know, whatever. But just keep at it and yeah. stop viewing every movie as this great like as as the opportunity to be you know have the angels swoop down and pick you up and transport you to heaven you know like yeah. like every movie is just a stepping stone to the next and and to what you can do and what you can contribute to the world of filmmaking you know and they say like you know if you make a film that's just as good as going to film school i would say kind of <laughs> You yeah, know, both 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 are good. I didn't learn nearly as much about filmmaking as I did about film business. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think like the three weeks I spent filming, I wasn't like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea how this worked. It's like right. I had a good idea of how it worked when it started. And I had a, a little bit better of idea of how it worked after. And yep. you, you just pick up those filmmaking lessons as you go. Yeah. But making making it so that you're responsible for every aspect of making it and releasing it, mm -hmm. then you really are learning. Then you really yep. are getting the experience. And you don't learn that in film school. Like, no. there's, you know, you can learn how to shoot in film school. You can learn how to edit in film school. You can't learn how to sell films in film school. I, yeah. They try. I know there's some classes here and there that do that. I took a few, but you can't. You got to really learn, learn by doing. Yeah. And by the time you're taking it, you know, if you're taking a class in, in film school, that class is probably 20 years out of date by now anyway, you know, yeah. because everything changes so much. You know, I'm studying more business things now just because I'm running a business of being a colorist. And yes. Yeah. The, the books I'm reading are like, do not get an MBA, just run a business, like yeah. go out and get revenue and yeah. put the work in. That's your business school. And yeah. it's totally true where it's like, if you're looking down the line and you see that you're in debt and you're seeing like no income coming in, it's like, you're going to start thinking, you're going to start thinking, what am I going to do? Like, right. how am I going to get out of this? <laughs> and then, and then you're going to do really cool things. Yep. Yep. For sure. Where can people find you, follow you, anything you want to plug, that kind of thing? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram um, at Hibernation Films. That's my moniker, Hibernation mm -hmm. Films on Instagram. You can see my color work and probably post, post some things about things I'm producing. You can also check my website out at hibernationfilms.com. Okay. And awesome. find the movie Emily. Uh, yeah, by that's me right. Yeah, I, I have to say, platform. <laughs> I have to say, I looked for it on Amazon and couldn't find it because yeah, there's too many that, other Emilys. That's uh, another that, lesson learned. Don't yeah, don't, don't name your call film your film a Emily. Singular, because <laughs> right. there's a new one that is about Emily Bronte. And yeah, so, yeah, it's not I, the film about Emily I can't, Bronte. I couldn't. I just couldn't find. It. But I went. I went on to Tubi then, and that's probably where I should start with most filmmakers' films. I'm sort of resistant to Avod, but I should yeah. embrace it, and because I know filmmakers make more money if I watch their movies on Tubi. So right now, yeah, here it is. Yeah, I'm declaring yeah. when I watch filmmakers' movies, I'm going to go to. A, I'm going to go to Tubi first. I'm going to tolerate the commercials. Yeah, because that's what gets filmmakers more money. So you heard yeah, it from exactly. me first. But that, yeah, that's where I, I found it and and was able to watch it there. So yeah, cool. Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks. It's been a great conversation. We hit a lot of like personal experience. We hit a lot of philosophical, you know, points and things like that. So just it's, it's been fantastic talking to you. I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it.
Well, that's all for today. Thanks everybody for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That is the best way that you can help me grow the show and reach a wider audience of independent filmmakers and others who just want to try to understand this crazy, crazy world of independent film distribution today. Uh, as always, do feel free to contact me directly with any feedback, suggestions for the show, uh, people you'd like to see me interview, or even just to say hello. You can reach me on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, both handles are the same at Dark Rose Colin, uh, or you can email me at Colin at darkrosepictures.com. And by the way, Dark Rose Pictures is my website for my feature and other projects. Uh, and its purpose is not just to promote my films, but to tell the story with honesty and transparency of my own personal filmmaking journey. So if you want to follow the process of an independent filmmaker from development to distribution, this is a great way to do that. So check it out, darkrosepictures.com. Uh, anyway, I want to thank Jesse Browder for editing this podcast. I want to thank Ryan Graves for a really interesting conversation. Uh, I have lots more great interviews lined up in the coming weeks talking all things indie distribution. So stay tuned, keep getting those movies out there into the world. And thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.